Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, last week, the UK Supreme Court ruled that Uber must classify their drivers as workers and provide them with workers' rights. This landmark decision has already had far-reaching consequences for the gig economy, with the EU announcing earlier this week that it has launched a consultation process to determine if workers in the gig economy should be afforded the same rights as permanent staff. James Farrer, the man who brought this landmark case against Uber, joins me now to discuss this victory for workers and what it might mean for the future of the gig economy. James, before we discuss this landmark case, you actually hail from Ballandagan, County Wexford. Good morning, Carl. Thanks for having me. I do, yes, yeah. And uh, all the family there, yeah, Kilcullen, Ballandagan. So, when did you move away from Ballandagan and head off overseas, and, and what have you been doing over the years? Well, it seems like yesterday, but it is a long time ago. 1987, I left Ireland, and um, I spent 10 years in the States, and... Um, came back to the UK. I, I went to I went to university in the states, and I ultimately ended up working for British Airways in the states. And I transferred with them back to the UK. Um, and I was there for about seven years, and then went off to work for a software company in Germany um, before coming back to the UK uh, about ten years ago now. And James, in 2015, you started driving for Uber in London. What led you down that particular road? Well, I'd left the software industry and I was setting up a non-profit organisation. I was looking at um, other things completely, particularly I was looking at supply chains and I was doing some work in Romania and I thought, well, I'll just do this because I was interested in supply chains and networks and how they work and I'll do this on the side and supplement my income while I'm um, setting up this other non-profit um, entity that I was I was. Um, that I was setting up, and yeah, it was that was was all on track until one evening um, uh, I had an assault, and um, you know, I it was a, it was a bit of a light bulb moment because uh, I found that uh, Uber was not cooperating with me to identify who the assailant was. It was just a huge surprise for me because I thought, well, it's a digital app. Everything is tracked and traced and we all know who we are and um, credit card details, phone numbers, GPS traces. I thought it would be all fine. Um, But over 10 weeks, they would cooperate neither with me um, nor the police, which is, you know, it's really surprising for me because you think, well, you know, you, you're so easily calm, but it just, just goes to show with technology, it's a choice. It doesn't mean, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you will. Um, you'll have to want to. And I couldn't understand why Uber didn't want to help and why, why it felt it didn't have a duty of care. So I started looking carefully at the contracts uh, between myself and Uber and, and also as a passenger, as a, as a customer of Uber, to see what kind of a relationship I would have had with Uber as a customer. And I was kind of shocked, really, um, to come to the realization that it is as a driver that you're directly contracted with the passenger, and as a passenger, you're directly contracted with the rider, and that Uber only presents itself as as an agent, and therefore really isn't carrying any liability or responsibility to anybody. And so when things go wrong, as they, as they did for me, that's a bit of a problem. And James, it was at that point that you decided to take an employment case against Uber. I did because um, I needed to establish, I wanted to establish, because I, I knew there was something terribly wrong here. Um, and I started also looking at the, the, the business model of Uber and I started collaborating with um, 
with my co-lead playman at the time, um, a chap called Yasin Aslam, and he was he was organising more in a traditional labour sense of you know he could see that. Uh, and he'd been in the industry for a while, and it was, I was just sort of dabbling. And he could see that there was an emerging problem with Uber, in that uh, they were really starting to recruit far too many people, and the prices were dropping as a result. Um, so drivers were faced with, you know, less utilisation of their time in vehicles, and then for the time they were working, they were earning less. So it was things were starting to slide, and he was concerned, and he was organising. And, and so he and I got together and he was looking at it from that perspective and I was looking at it from mine. And we started talking to lawyers about, well, what, what's, what's the relationship here? What, you know, if we're not employees, what are we? And it turns out in the UK, there's a third category that lies somewhere between being truly self-employed as a sole trader and paddling your own canoe and being fully employed by uh, a business in the traditional sense that, you and I might know, and that's that's called a worker, a limby, so-called limby worker. And the distinguishing feature of that is that you are indeed self-employed, but you're not in business on your own account. That you're integrated into somebody else's business, so you don't have a lot of control over the overall business enterprise. Um, and that may not be a problem if you're a highly qualified surgeon or IT technician or um, also professional footballers or classical workers. Um, but it is a problem if you're in a low-skilled area where you have poor bargaining power. Um, you could be subject to exploitation because you wouldn't have control over your business, but you wouldn't have protection of employment law. And that, that's exactly why this worker category exists to protect people in that vulnerable position. You've got the protection of the minimum wage, holiday pay, uh, freedom from discrimination, whistleblower protection, but really not much else. You don't have sick pay, pension rights, protection from unfair dismissal. These are very bottom rung uh, protections you have, but they're very important for people in the gig economy who, who are subject to some exploitation. And how vigorously, James, did Uber defend this case throughout? They fought it very vigorously. I get the impression that they could have fought the first level a little bit more strenuously, that they could have been a little bit better prepared and perhaps there was a certain amount of swagger at that stage that they thought that this was something they could just bat away because I think they so believed in their model that it could sidestep all of these types of claims that they perhaps didn't quite invest the time or energy that they might have had. Um, but they certainly from then on, uh, at that, after that first level, they changed their legal team. Uh, they uh, put in um, Dina Rose QC and her team from Blackstone and DLA Piper had an army of lawyers on this. Uh, Dina Rose is now the president of Magdalen College. She's really eminent um, QC in the UK, but they certainly from that point on threw everything they had at it because I think it's it was, it was existential. And we know it was existential because by the time Uber went public uh, with their IPO in what 2019, May 2019, you know, in, ahead of that, they had to publish a prospectus to the SEC, to investors. So they had to declare their risks. And in that document, which you can still see online, the S1 document for Uber, they have named our case there as a material risk to their business model. Uh, so they certainly took it very seriously and so did their investors. And how did Uber try to defend their position? So, I mean, we won because we could evidence that there was real control and therefore, you know, we, could, we were not really truly self-employed. There was too much control at play and really the only flexibility, the only control 
that drivers had was just to work more hours. You, didn't, you, couldn't, you, know, you couldn't develop your business in any other way. And so therefore, you're not really, you're not really um, at that point an independent contractor. You're, you're actually a worker and you need to be protected. The flip side of um, Uber's argument, uh, why it was so important, is that Uber said, well, look, these are commercial contracts. And, you know, um, uh, contractual agreements between parties are fundamental to business. It's really important. That's how business runs, you know, uh, that we have, you know, we can agree contract terms and obligations. And we take those seriously without that trust and without that legal framework, you know, business couldn't couldn't exist. And so Uber's argument was these are these are commercial contracts between parties. They simply can't be set aside in the way that they have been and reinterpreted as an employment relationship. Because that's what the you know what the common law here allowed the court to do is to say, no, 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 forget this contract. These guys are not employed out of Amsterdam, as Uber said. These guys are not uh, you know, independent contractors running their own business. These guys are employed by Uber London Limited and they are under strict control. So that's the correct interpretation. What Uber argued at the Supreme Court is that the judge is not entitled to reinterpret commercial contracts in that way and uh, to interpret them as, as an employment relationship. And unfortunately for them, they lost, but they, they, they really lost big. James, ultimately, there was two key issues to be decided in this case. Firstly, were Uber drivers deemed to be workers or were they deemed to be self-employed third-party contractors? And secondly, if they were workers, when are they actually working? Is it when they were logged into the app or when there was a passenger in their car? Yeah, that's, this is absolutely fascinating part of this case and the one that I, you know, factor that I was most worried about. Um, Uber's fallback position was that if if we are workers, then you could only be a worker during the period of time that you have a revenue-paying passenger in the vehicle. And for most drivers, that's about 50 to 60% of the time. There's a huge amount of wasted uh, time uh, under on, under employment, under allocation, under utilisation. And, and that's very important for networks like Uber because they need a lot of you know pent-up supply because that drives down the response time and that's what drives your competitiveness. You get to a customer more quickly than anybody else. But that's, you know, so that's a positive network effect, but very um, negative for drivers because it means poorer earnings, means congestion for cities, poor air quality and so on. Um, and so we were very keen that that working time would be paid because that would give Uber then the incentives to, like any business, to match supply and demand optimally. But, you know, you don't need to do that if you're not paying for that supply, either the capital or, or the labour. Um, but the, the court decided that, yes, you are a worker from the point of log on when you make yourself available to, um, for, for work until you log off again. This sets up a bigger problem, though, is what do you do in a multi-app environment if you are working for several apps, which is certainly the case in London, and here the kind of the court have kicked the can down the road. And there's two possible outcomes. Uh, one is tribunals in future might take a pro-rate approach and say, look, if you're working for one for 80% of your time, then maybe that's where 80% of the liability lies. Or they may take a more religious view and sort of say, no, if you're working for two, then you couldn't be a worker during that period of time. If they make that decision, then that would suggest, I would suggest the challenger apps are in big trouble. Because a driver then is going to have is going to have the choice of saying, I can make myself available to multiple apps and I might get a job, but I'd lose my minimum wage and holiday pay accrual. 
I think a rational choice would be, you know, to turn off the apps that are giving you very little work and focus all your time and energy in one, which would give, you know, the biggest app network, which is currently is Uber, tremendous sort of monopoly power. We'll have to see how that plays out. But it's fascinating uh, what the court decided and um, how that may play out in the future. And of course, there's a number of retrospectively applied financial consequences for Uber as a result of the judgment also. What are they? Well, I mean, um, you know, so drivers are, can go back now and make a claim for any reference period of time, so weekly period, a payroll period, if you like, um, for, any, for any point in that reference period where they did not cross the minimum wage threshold, uh, Uber would have to pay up for that. And they would have to pay them the equivalent of 28 days holiday accrual per year for full-time workers. So for, for guys who maybe have worked at Uber since 2012, you know, you're getting on nine years worth of, it's quite, you know, it's quite a quite a nice settlement if you've worked for Uber that time. We know in Uber's licensing um, appeal uh, before the courts in, separately in September that they, they have to do a piece of analysis of how many people have ever worked for Uber. And at that time, they were saying that they, they had, over the past few years, at one time or another, they had 90,000 people who were live on the app. So that's the sort of addressable, if you like, uh, market of claimants for the future. But I think at the moment, it's about 40,000 to 50,000 people working for Uber. And and one of the law firms that we're working with um, that's now processing claims for them estimates that they're each are due about between ten and £12,000 each. It's a major, major win for you against that mammoth organisation, Uber. How does it feel? <laughs> it feels really good. I mean, it was... It's a little scary because, you know, the, the cold reality of it is is going into the Supreme Court is that, you know, we, we you know, but I always joke with our legal team when I go when I when I go to the hearings and I, I listen to the arguments. It, it's a bit like for me watching cricket. You know, I, I could sit there all afternoon, but I, I still don't have, don't have a clue who's winning or losing or what's going on. Um, so it, it is it is surprisingly difficult to predict how, how these cases will pan out, even. Even the most experienced barristers will will never come out and say, "Yeah, I won that." Um, but the stakes were really, really high because what you have is, is you know, a million people um, more working in the gig economy in Britain. And if if we had lost this case, or even if we had maybe had a flaw in our legal strategy and pursued it in the wrong way, um, and hadn't you know hadn't prepared that case properly, and sometimes that goes back to the the very beginning, you know, how you had started this case. Um, but the fact is, if we if we had lost, um, you know, then then it, the reality would be uh, that all of these people working in the gig economy would have no protection at all in employment at all. And and that's you know that brings us back to the last century, really. That that's before employment law existed. That's we would have a, a lot of people in whose daily work had no no employment protection at all, and that that was very scary that that we could lose and the impact that would have had on other people. We would have it would have been better not taking a case at all than for something like that to happen. But as it turned out, we we not only won, but we we won big. You know, we got the full working time recognition for all the time that people are working available on the app, and it was a it was a um, it was a majority decision of six nil. So there was no, you know, there was no dissenting opinion. There was no alternative analysis of Uber's position. They couldn't find one justice on the bench that could, that could get alongside what they were doing. I don't think that this is the end of the road for you when it comes to the gig economy. You've recently established the Work Info Exchange. What's that all about? Well, you know, the, 
the big the big um, learning for me in, over the past few years is that in the gig economy, you know, it, it is um, the gateway increasingly for for workers who are in an increasingly digitised workplace, and that's a, it has only accelerated during the pandemic. Um, the um, the gateway to worker rights is through through data and through uh, control greater control of our data. And, and the reason for for that is is that you know we were really successful against Uber because you know Uber was still pretty immature, and it was generating a lot of evidence of management control, and we were very good at capturing that evidence and you know and compiling lots of documents. We were extremely well prepared. But these these platforms have really changed a lot since then, and so a lot of the overt control that was being expressed at the time has now been brought behind the digital curtain. And so there's a lot of algorithmic control that you may not be able to see. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately for us, under the GDPR, there is the right to access your data, but there's also the right to have an, a proper explanation of the, the so-called logic of process, processing of that data. Um, and so we have um, started cases against Ola Cabs, which is the big Indian um, uh, uh, challenger to Uber, uh, as well as Uber in Amsterdam for for access to data, uh, for algorithmic transparency, uh, and also we brought a series of cases against um, uh, unfair automated decision making, which relates to Article 22 of the GDPR. It's just it's just this idea that you know you can't be fired by a machine without some level of human intervention, and we say that Uber has has done that uh, in some cases. Um, what I'm talking about here is um, cases like um, failed fa facial recognition. If somebody's failed a facial recognition has been fired for it. It turns out it was the system that failed, and we could prove that. But you know, the driver never had a chance to have an appeal or anything like that. We, we must we must challenge those. So we have a series of those legal challenges underway in the uh, in the Netherlands. But to give you an idea of how how important this is, there's. Um, uh, this cab company Ola, the big Indian challenger, they actually admit that they create a fraud probability score for every driver, which is, you know, you think about it morally, ethically, it's a quite a questionable thing to do. I would predict, you know, your moral character and how likely you are to break the rules. And then I will use that score as a factor in the algorithm that decides what work you're going to get. This is This is quite dangerous territory. Now, they openly admit that they do that, but they won't disclose the score or the methodology of calculation. And I'm afraid that is illegal under GDPR, and it's one of the things we're challenging. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was James Farrer, the General Secretary for the App Drivers and Couriers Union in the UK, and I'm certain that the effects of last week's judgment will transform the future of the gig economy. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Southeast. 